My last episode was about an individual. This episode is about a place, Grunyard Island, a desolate and inhospitable patch of northwestern Scotland. Lying about a kilometre from the mainland and dozens of kilometres from the nearest major town, Grunyard occupies a sleepy and tranquil spot in the British Isles. There are many Scottish islands off the west coast, and amongst them, Grunyard is hardly remarkable. Were it not for the events that follow, you'd likely never have heard of it, placed as it is, about 50 kilometres north of the much more famous and picturesque Isle of Skye. It's an area used to a slower pace of life, campervans creeping up along the NC500, the odd hiker, and the cries of seabirds. So why am I talking to you about it? What's the podcast about? Well, in the 1940s, the UK Ministry of Defence decided to requisition the island for some weapons testing, and what followed got a little bit out of hand. This episode is about these tests, the aftermath, and the campaign to get the island cleaned up. Welcome to Anthrax Island, and to Operation Dark Harvest. I want to point out early on that the real victims in this episode are farm animals, and whilst I won't be too graphic in my descriptions, the mention of animal cruelty is unavoidable. I also want to point out that I don't support any of the terrorist activity that comes later. We'll get to that, but first a word from our sponsor, Corners. If you've ever needed to create boundaries to a space but haven't been able to work out how many lines within which to constrain it, then Corners might just be for you. Suitable for both squares and rectangles, Corners allow you to enclose a four-sided space with ease and elegance. These right-angled wonders are compatible with a range of furniture and, when paired with corner-based products, allow for a tasteful and efficient use of space. Try them out today by using a protractor to draw out a 90-degree angle on a sheet of paper near you. Thank you to Corners for sponsoring this episode. This story has its roots in the early 1940s, in the turbulent days of the second half of the Second World War. The British have just come out of the so-called darkest hour of the conflict, and with the United States having joined the war, things may be looking up, but they're not out of the woods yet. As the foundational myth of our society, it's taken for granted that as the Allies defeated the ultimate evil of Nazi Germany, they must be the ultimate good. This notion hand waves away a great deal of history, however, and on the topic of biological weapons research, I think that a further degree of scrutiny is worthwhile. There's easily a whole podcast worth of discussion here, but I'll try and stick to the most relevant parts. There's a book called A Higher Form of Killing by Jeremy Paxman and Robert Harris, and yes, that is the newsreader and the fiction author, that goes into more detail if you're really keen to dig deeper. The basic idea is that all the justifications for atomic weapons work for biological weapons, and it's purely by chance that we revile biological agents and accept the use of atomics to end World War II. We came incredibly close to using these horrific weapons, and what follows will be the story of why, how, and where we researched them. It's a tragic fact that throughout this process, the only victims were Scottish farm animals, but it could have been so much worse. Here's a quick rundown of how Churchill ended up giving the green light. Shiro Ishii, director of Japan's Biological Warfare Unit 731, had the idea for researching and developing chemical biological warfare after returning from Europe in 1932, reasoning that the Geneva Conventions wouldn't ban something if it wasn't effective. You know what? Fair enough, Shiro. That actually makes a lot of sense. Japan, using horrifying techniques, makes rapid progress and uses CBW, please, I can't keep saying chemical and biological warfare, against the Chinese. The Chinese complain to the British in July of 1942, and the British get scared that there's a biological warfare gap between the Axis and Allied powers. Churchill suggests to his chiefs of staff that they start seriously considering CBW, and porting down the UK's chemical research facility in Wiltshire is put to the task. So they've started doing site research because they thought we were doing site research when in fact we weren't doing site research? Yes, sir. But now that they are doing site research, we're going to have to do site research, sir. We can't afford to have the Russians leading the field in the paranormal. Does this remind anyone else of that site research gag from the men who stare at goats? A great film, and it's the exact same argument. 
In fact, this has an awkward reappearance at the Nuremberg trials when the Soviets attempt to get Hans Fritscher sentenced to death on the ground that he'd, in 1943, suggested using CBW against the Soviets. The British and Americans, who know by this point that they'd started their own CBW programs earlier, rather sheepishly had to insist on his acquittal on this charge, lest their own wartime activity come to light. If this seems like ancient history, I'd like to point out that we were still lying to hide these facts until at least as recently as 1980. Let me read you a quote from the British delegate to the Review Conference on the Convention of Biological and Toxin Weapons. The United Kingdom has never possessed and has not acquired microbial or other biological agents and toxins in quantities which could be employed for weapon purposes. Absolutely false. I know that was a real whistle-stop tour of a topic as disturbing as it is fascinating, but that's just the groundwork for the United Kingdom's foray into CBW. At this point, Port and Down are considering botulinal toxins and anti-crop agents alongside anthrax, and it's possible that botulism poisoning was used to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich in 1942. Hmm, I was trying to stay on track, but this story is wild enough to divert for, I promise. The theory is that the Czech partisans were given handmade botulism grenades, called X-grenades, handmade by Port and Down, to ensure the success of the assassination technique. If you don't know the story, I'm not going to go into that much detail, but... Basically, he's ambushed in his car, and it's a grenade that kills him. It's said that these modified number 73 anti-tank grenades were so handmade that they were held together in some part by adhesive tape. The main evidence is that a leading member of the Port and Down CBW team at the time kept telling people that he'd done this. Bit of a breach of security protocols, but it does seem like he might have had a hand in it. Look up the notes around Hydrix's death and the symptoms of botulism toxicity, because it does seem very compelling. Anyway, let's get back on track. So the British are involved in CBW. They've decided that the risk of the Germans using it justifies their own research into it. And they've given the renegades at Porton Down the green light to get real weird. And here's how it ties back to Scotland, the absurdly named Operation Vegetarian. Anthrax is a bit like evil glitter in the sense that it gets absolutely everywhere, is an absolute nightmare to clean up, and that if you see a little bit, there's likely a lot of it just out of sight, probably all over you. It's also incredibly deadly. Named from the Greek word anthrakas, meaning coal, a reference to the black lesions experienced by those who get it in contact with their skin, anthrax is an absolutely vile bacteria. It can lie dormant for centuries, but once put back into contact with a biological host, it causes absolute mayhem. Multiplying in the victim's soft tissues, the bacteria causes an absolutely hellish set of symptoms. I'm not going to go into a full medical list of complications, but just take it from me. It's not fun, and if inhaled, 90% of cases are fatal. I think it's the most evil, inert substance that exists, to the extent that something inert can be evil. But seriously, a teaspoon of this stuff, released as an aerosol into the atmosphere, could kill around a million people. It's extremely cursed, and you don't want to be anywhere near it. It's also incredibly difficult to destroy, and endospores, the form which dormant anthrax takes, have been described as the most durable cells produced in nature. Operation Vegetarian was the idea to create over 5 million anthrax-laced cattle cakes and drop them into rural Germany in 1944. Hmm. Enter Grignard Island. Poor little Grignard Island, if you can see where I'm going with this. Ideally placed due to its general remoteness, yet proximity to a naval base at Loch U, the two square kilometres of this unfortunate outcrop were about to be host to some absolutely horrendous scenes. Requisition from the owners for £500 with the promise to sell it back to them at the same price once made safe for habitation, the Ministry of Defence had found their perfect testing ground. The owners probably got the letter from the MOD and went along with the plan, reasoning that at least they get that island back at some point. They weren't missing out on much, it having been uninhabited since at least the 1920s and not having any commercial use outside of the occasional grazing of sheep. 
Due to the pre-existing naval base, the locals probably didn't think much of the new arrival of a team of scientists in the summer of 1942. When they set up camp on the mainland, overlooking the island, the locals would have no idea what would later unfold, even when they began awkwardly unloading ominous glass flasks dressed in civilian clothes. The civilians are the dream team, or nightmare squad I guess in this context, of British chemical warfare. Led by a man called Paul Files, the presence of these men and their mission is of the utmost secrecy and importance to the British government. Oh, and by the way, Paul Files is the guy who made the X grenades and kept telling his colleagues about it. I just wanted to chuck that in. This is Port and Dan on tour, and over the next months, they're going to create hell on earth for some farm animals. The reason anthrax was chosen was due to the hardy nature of its spores. Whilst the X bombs based on botulism were more deadly in the short term, the N bombs, and wow, that's an unfortunate code name, were less likely to be rendered inert by their delivery method and were therefore assumed to cause greater devastation. The aim of the mission was to study the effectiveness of anthrax against livestock and to gauge its resilience to different delivery methods. The idea behind Operation Vegetarian was to drop anthrax-infected cattle cakes made of linseed into the fields where the German livestock lived. They thought that the mysterious deaths of animals would scare the Germans into avoiding meat, damaging morale and giving the project its name. I think we can reasonably assume that if this was carried out, anthrax would have spread through the civilian population too. And despite no mention of it in declassified plans, I'd argue that the psychopaths underwriting the whole thing probably thought so as well. The idea, as set down on paper, was very different to the idea being carried out though. And to take it to the next step, the MOD would need a delivery method and some information on the effectiveness of anthrax against livestock. I want to examine the mindset of the scientists involved in this project. All experts in their field, they're asked by their country, which is essentially engaged in total war, to create a weapon. Over the next section of the podcast, I'm going to make them sound like absolute lunatics, but before I go on, I just want you to take a second to imagine what you'd do if, as an expert in a field, your country came to you and asked you to do something immoral to win a war. Imagine you have friends and family fighting abroad and think that the weapon you produce could end the war before they see combat. Maybe not such an easy question to answer. Well, I'm sure several people said no, but enough people said yes, and the events were set in motion. The Nightmare Squad started by rounding up around 30 sheep and preparing the first end bomb. This absurd scene is recounted in A Higher Form of Killing. Dr. Henderson prepared the weapon itself. It was a 25-pound chemical bomb, 18 inches high and 6 inches in diameter. Normally it contained mustard gas. To help prime it, Henderson called in the Portland team's young explosive expert, Major Alan Younger. Neither man wore a gas mask. As Henderson uncorked one of the flasks, I was asked to hold the bomb, recalled Younger. Whilst he poured this mixture in, it turned out to be a brown, thick gruel, and with great trepidation, I held on to the thing, making sure I wouldn't spill it as he poured this thick stuff in. The thick stuff was a slurry of concentrated anthrax spores. The scientists take the sheep and the rudimentary weapon over to Grignard and tether the sheep around the bomb in concentric circles. They're now clad in overalls and respirators, and there's actually some declassified footage of this on YouTube, as haunting as it is bizarre. I won't link this one on Twitter, but it's not hard to find. The bomb is detonated, and the first animal victims of Grunyard are exposed to the deadly spores. It only takes a day for the first sheep to die. I'm sad to say that over the course of 1942, a lot more than 30 sheep were killed by anthrax on Grunyard Island, as the scientists continued their research. Each explosion released billions of spores into the surrounding area, and although they paid heed to the wind direction if it veered towards the mainland, they were utterly indiscriminate with Grunyard itself. At the end of each day, the cloth overalls worn by the research team and their assistants had to be burnt and the wearer thoroughly showered. I think it's quite sinister how they say showered rather than 
take a shower, that sort of active rather than passive thing means that I'm assuming they're getting sprayed and there's someone with like a brush, like in um, Doctor No. As the summer wore on, they progressed from sheep to cows and horses, all tragic victims of what was already known to be an extremely deadly substance. Pausing the experiments in the winter of 1942 and returning the next year, the Nightmare team pulled out all the stops. They even used a low-flying Vickers Wellington to bomb farm animals. The pilots must have had strong stomachs. As the experiments progressed, another gruesome issue arose. The incinerators the team were using to dispose of the carcasses were unable to keep up with demand. After a particularly lethal test, Major Younger came up with the idea of pushing the carcasses off a cliff and using explosives to collapse the cliff over the dead sheep, sequestering the spores and preventing contamination. Packing the cliff with a thousand pounds of explosives, you can pause here and see if you can guess what goes wrong, they detonate the charge and bring the cliff crashing down. In all the dust and smoke this must have caused, and looking through the dim circular visors of their gas masks, they can almost be forgiven for missing the anthrax-riddled carcass blasted clear of the falling rocks. Obviously this is going to come back to haunt them later, but let me just take a little detour to give you yet another crazy anecdote about Major Younger. When they stopped the experiments for the winter, they took the chemicals back to Port and Down for safekeeping. For some reason, probably due to secrecy, they didn't want to use a plane, so they decided that Major Younger would drive the truck full of anthrax back to Wiltshire with a military driver to share the time at the wheel. Handing him a map and a pistol, the Port and Down team tell him not to stop for any suspicious circumstances. It's not specified, but for some reason, I can't help but imagine they follow that up with See you back in Wiltshire, old chap, before immediately boarding a plane. So Major Annan Younger starts his journey south, and I'll let this quote speak for itself. In southern Scotland, we drove around a corner and found a woman lying apparently dead on our side of the road ahead of us. She'd probably been run over. It was a tremendous moral dilemma, but I felt I couldn't afford to stop. I knew just how dangerous this stuff was, and it was top secret. It was my responsibility to ensure that things didn't go wrong. That's why I passed by. Ever since, I've had it on my conscience. What the f*** Alan? Jesus Christ. Also, he said this in an interview with the Sunday Times in the 1980s. I don't know whether to commend him for his honesty or question the mental state of someone who willingly offers this information. Wait, yeah, no, he's clearly insane. I mean, do you think this story is over? Nope, he's still driving his truck south, and after another few hundred miles, the driver suggests they pull over for the night. It's not even his idea, and Alan just agrees with it and decides they're spending the night in Leeds. Dropping the van off at a police station in the city centre, Alan asks the police sergeant to watch it overnight. The police agree, they don't ask any questions, and they just sort of send some guys to look after this truck. And then Alan and his driver go and have a nap, whilst enough anthrax to kill everyone in Leeds, and probably a good deal more, sits in a police car park until dawn. The way he goes from, oh no, that poor woman has been hit by a car, don't stop though, what if it's a ruse to steal the anthrax, to let's just leave it in central Leeds, the Germans wouldn't possibly try and steal something from a police station, blows my mind. Can you imagine if the van was hit by an air raid that night? We likely still wouldn't be able to go to Leeds to this day. Well, the van was still there the next morning, and it does seem like the worst road trip ever was a success in the end, but that wasn't the last Major Young I would see of Grunyard. The sheep from the cliff bomb thing had been dislodged in a storm and floated onto the mainland. Locals claim that a dog had been seen eating a sheep carcass on the beach opposite Grunyard and had then gone about its busy social calendar, calling in on all his best animal friends in the village, including seven cattle, two horses, three cats, and over 20 sheep. It's a miracle it didn't kill any people, but the deaths of all these animals was, and still is, an absolute tragedy. 
There are eyewitness reports from the locals claiming to be able to have seen some of the goings-on on Grunyard during the experiments. Some even claim to be able to see the puffs of smoke from the explosions and gas mask-clad men operating incinerators. Can you imagine the terror that would have swept through the community when their livestock began to drop dead one by one? There's actually speculation that anthrax was the fifth biblical plague of Egypt, and it must have felt like it to those Scottish locals. When the farmers started to raise the alarm, word got back to Porton Down, who promptly panicked. They must have been absolutely terrified. Not only did they not know how much anthrax has made it to the mainland, but at this point they don't know about the dog and have no idea what's causing the spread. They immediately shoved Major Younger and Dr. Files into a military plane and dispatched them north, but their plane crash lands near Liverpool, and it's up to the government scientists stationed in the nearby town of Altby to hand out compensation. I imagine the plane crashes, they, they say in the book that it's due to um, an oil leak, but I imagine that maybe the combination of Younger and Files running up to the plane and being like, get me to Scotland now, was, uh, was why the guy didn't do his pre-flight checks and maybe it was an avoidable thing. It's actually noted in the book that the only injury sustained during the plane crash is uh, Files cuts his hand on a bottle of whiskey he was drinking, so the energy on that plane must have been extremely chaotic. The local guy, the scientist in Altby, who's staying up in a hotel, is basically then told to just hand out the compensation without asking too many questions when the claims came in. And to be honest, I imagine that would really freak people out as well. So your horse has just died. You go to the government guy and say, look, I, I believe this is to do with your experiments. I think I'm owed some compensation. And the guy just goes, yep, 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 no question to ask. Here you go, 200 pounds. I think that would be a bit sinister. Arriving the next day by road, Younger and Files took stock of the situation and realised what had happened. The island was a huge mess of anthrax, and the next time the spores made it to the mainland, the outcome could be so much worse. They decided to do what they could, and donning their protective gear again, they crossed back to the island and set the heather alight. If you'd like to get a picture of what this scene looked like, I'll put a picture from the March 22 fire up on Twitter. The undeniably spectacular scene might have put minds at ease, but unfortunately it didn't do anything to destroy the anthrax. I mean, of course it didn't. They'd engineered it to survive being delivered by bomb. It seems crazy to me that Major Younger comes out with all this in interviews. Normally when someone's interviewed about the war, it's about their heroic service or their part in a battle that changed the course of the conflict. This guy managed to kill a load of sheep, drive past the victim of a traffic collision, endanger the entire population of Leeds and set an island alight for no reason. Also, in the midst of all this, they're trying to calm down the locals by saying that although it was anthrax that killed the animals, they had nothing to do with it, and that it came off a Greek cargo ship that was crossing further out to sea. The explosive expert who engineered the bomb is telling people that the island has nothing to do with it, whilst setting the island alight, knowing that it will expose the anthrax to lower temperatures than his bombs. Right. At this point, they tried to draw a line under it. It's nearing the end of 1943, and the plans for a Normandy landing are being drawn up. It seems wild to drop anthrax on an area you're about to liberate, and the decision makers seem to think that dropping anthrax might lose public support. 5.2 million anthrax cattle cakes are incinerated, and the signs are erected on Grunyard, suggesting that maybe it isn't the best place for a picnic. And that's just kind of it, for 40 years. In the 60s and 70s, Port and Dan keep sending scientists to update the signs and check for any developments. But as time goes on, they begin to realise that the anthrax isn't going anywhere. 1981 rolls around, and it seems like it's business as usual for poor Grunyard. But it's at this point in the story that the most enigmatic characters arrive on the scene. Enter Dark Harvest. Take a break at this point, go get a cup of tea, because things are about to take a serious left turn. What follows is an account of the most successful environmental activists yet seen in the British Isles. Hmm. Did I say activists? I meant to say terrorists. 
It turns out that Port and Down weren't the only people on Grunyard in 1981. Someone else has been doing some digging, quite literally. They've been harvesting soil samples, and now they're going to use them for nefarious purposes. They've got the spores, and now they're going to hold the country to ransom. They're going to demand £100 million each in ransom money. They're asking for regime change, a three-day weekend. No, actually, they're not asking for any of that. They're just asking for the island to be cleaned up. I cannot think of another instance in history where such a small group has access to such a powerful weapon, makes a comparatively minor demand, and gets away with it without a trace. To this day, nobody knows who Dark Harvest actually were, but when they wrote their letter to the Glasgow Herald, you can bet the people sat up and took notice. The full text is available online, but I'll give you the main thrust. This year is the 40th anniversary of this problem. That we still have the problem to worry about today is due to 40 years of total official indifference. This indifference is about to end. In 1941, the government of the day took our island away. We want it back, properly laundered. To this end, I'm working on the principle that nothing gets done until somebody does something. A team of microbiologists from two universities, guided by members of our local population, affected a landing on the island last week. A large number of soil samples from all over the island with a total weight of 300 pounds, were securely backed and removed to the mainland. All necessary precautions were taken. Over the next 12-month period, these bags will be deposited at appropriate points that will ensure the rapid loss of indifference of the government and the equally rapid education of the general public with regard to this particular problem. By the time you read this statement, the campaign would have started in earnest. The first delivery would have been made and where better to send our seeds of death than to the place from whence they came? Portland Down has just received a gift from Grunyard Island, the first of many. Point of interest, due to erratic distribution of the spores, it is likely that only one bag in two or three will actually be contaminated, but don't count on it. This indifference is about to end sounds like something from a Hollywood screenplay, doesn't it? They also include this ominous quote, If they deny any knowledge of it, quote the Matthew 7-7, the scripture reads, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. This must have sent chills down the spines of those at Port and Down, the only ones who truly knew what Dark Harvest had and what it was capable of. An estimated 300 trillion spores had been released onto Grignard, and this terror group claimed to have harvested 300 pounds of the soil. Their worst fears were confirmed when Dark Harvest made good on their promise and left a bucket full of soil on the Port and Down perimeter fence, apparently in such an unassuming manner that it was missed on the first sweep. Hazmat suits were donned and the samples were brought into the lab where the presence of anthrax was confirmed. This was the one thing they didn't want to happen. The next package was found only five days later, behind a locked door in Blackpool Tower. The Conservative Party conference was being held nearby, and at this point, the authorities went into full-scale panic. The police were roaming the Highlands looking for any leads they could find, and apparently the Navy even considered stationing gunboats off Grignard in case more soil was harvested. Once tested by Port and Down, the Blackpool soil was not found to contain anthrax spores, and subsequent documentarians seemed to make a big deal of this minor detail. This is not at all surprising given that the soil samples were taken from all over the island, and in fact, Dark Harvest themselves suspected that between half and 66% of the soil samples wouldn't contain spores. Other people discussing this event seem to try and use it one of two ways, to either ascribe an element of sympathy for the public or incompetence to those at Dark Harvest. 
but I think it's clear they didn't have the means to test for anthrax themselves and were just selecting which sample to send at random. Also, I, I just want to jump in here with a note about the name of the organisation in case you guys want to go off and Google the topic afterwards or watch the BBC documentary. The name of the group is Dark Harvest and an individual member described themselves as a Dark Harvest commando. That seems to have confused some people. <laughs> for some reason, the press and future documentaries have called the group Dark Harvest Commandos or even worse, the singular Dark Harvest Commando. But it's clear the group was Dark Harvest. A note left to the man whose boat they borrowed to access Grignard all but confirms this. Wikipedia even call the group Dark Harvest Commando, but this is akin to calling the London Fire Brigade London Fire Brigade Firemen. The commando signifies the role of the individual writing the note within the organisation. I honestly think that maybe the powers that be were trying to discredit the group by taking the edge off their unbelievably cool name. I also think that a degree of symbolism in the placement of the tins of soil was missed at the time. The first tin at Port and Dan was an obvious one. You made this mess, you're going to have to clear it up. But the second one at Blackpool, I think, had a more subtle message, which was swept up in the rah-rah, IRA, kill Thatcher mood of the time. Placing it in the tower and leaving the tin closed is almost a way of saying, how do you like having this looming over you? And choosing the Conservative Party conference is a canny choice because you have all these MPs from all over the country who can usually just cast off these kind of issues as a problem for someone else, force the deal with the issue on their doorstep. Also, its position behind a locked door is rather sinister. It's pointing to a degree of access and means. Another reason I believe the placement was primarily symbolic is that if they wanted to go for all-out panic and public outrage, there are a thousand more obvious targets in the UK. If they'd just uncorked one of the tins of dirt and thrown it down the escalators at King's Cross at 8.40 on a Monday, Dark Harvest and Grignard would have been global news headlines for a month. I think it's safe to say that Dark Harvest cared more about getting their specific message into the hands of those able to affect change, rather than just making a loud noise. I almost wish the greasy soup throwers at Just Stop Oil would take notes and stop inconveniencing the maximum amount of people for no discernible benefit. Anyway, Dark Harvest have pulled off their first two soil deliveries, and now the establishment is pulling out all the stops to try and put an end to it. Investigators focus on a few groups, in particular some Scottish nationalists and a hippie community at Scoreg, a short distance from the island. The authorities were struggling for leads, and being able to put the names of specific groups on the big whiteboard at Scotland Yard probably felt like progress. It's much scarier to think that the perpetrators might just be a small group of local community members, because at this point the likelihood of catching them tends towards zero. I don't want to start espousing my own opinions as facts, but I think we can reasonably rule out the Scottish nationalists from the start, based on the simple fact that the manifesto is so entirely written to focus on Grignard. There's no attempt to polemicise the issue to drive a rift between England and Scotland. And reading the article, it seems like Dark Harvest condemn both local and national governments equally. I'd also argue that Westminster is a much more obvious target for Scottish nationalists, not Porton Down. I'm less confident, but still fairly certain that the hippies weren't the culprits. And my reasoning for this is that they arrived after 1943 and placed themselves voluntarily. They arrived after the signs were put up, and each of them came in drip by drip to achieve what seems to have been a maximum population of around 30 people. The bit that makes me rule them out is the line, In 1941, the government of our day took our island away. We want it back, properly laundered. What right did their new arrivals have to want something back? Skoreg is about five and a half kilometres away and also can't really see Grignard from its population centre. From Skoreg, you could maybe walk for 10 minutes to a point where you could see Grignard, but they're not looking at it out their kind of kitchen windows. Also, if these hippies were so up for some terrorism, wouldn't they join a local political group and not 
kind of extricate themselves from the world to live off-grid and then get into terrorism? It doesn't seem to add up. A special police task force was set up to investigate Dark Harvest, and they ran around interviewing both these groups and more in search of clues. Perhaps the best lead they found was a petition pinned to a cork board of a local post office in Laid, a small town on the shores overlooking the island, but the locals were tight-lipped and no progress was made. The authorities were terrified of further soil samples turning up, but the next move made by Dark Harvest was to be their last. On December 7th, 1981, they posted what essentially amounts to a resignation note on the door of St Andrew's House in Edinburgh. In this note, they say that their campaign has achieved its goals and that they do not feel the need to carry out any more dirt deliveries. They get the whole country riled up, the MOD is panicking about Grunyard, and they just go, well, that's what we wanted in the first place, so we're over causing a fuss, catch you later. To be fair to Dark Harvest, they'd managed to pull off one major feat that made Grunyard's cleanup inevitable. They'd shown that a small group of the public could access deadly bioweapons and move them around the country without being caught. That was enough. The cleanup operation didn't begin until 1986, and the lengths to which the MOD went to launder the island were rather absurd. Starting by removing the topsoil and sealing it in shipping containers, they then rigged up a series of hose pipes crisscrossing the infected areas, into which they pumped 280 tonnes of formaldehyde, mixed with around 2,000 tonnes of seawater. These pipes had little punctures along their length to allow them to act as a kind of sprinkler system, and by this method, the MOD was able to saturate the soil to a sufficient depth to destroy the great majority of the bacteria. The cost and manpower required by this venture must have been absurd, but I guess taking anthrax out of the hands of the public is worth it overall. I think it's unlikely that all of the anthrax was destroyed, but in the years after this, a flock of sheep was placed on the island and closely monitored, and they seemed to get along just fine. The anthrax buried by the collapsed cliffs is also potentially still viable, but we can just hope that over the next thousand years, coastal erosion and winter storms don't uncover the cliffs and release more of that. In 1990, nine years after Operation Dark Harvest, the government declared the island clean once again and sent a junior minister and a photographer to take down the signs. The Conservatives tried to use this event to bolster their green credentials, but in all the press frenzy, a few wires got crossed and the line about reselling the island to the original owner became a news headline of Disinfected Scottish Island on sale for £500. Not quite what was on offer, but the press ran with it and letters poured in. In actual fact, the original contract from the 1940s was honoured and the island was sold back to the daughter of the original owner in 1990, but members of the public keen to get away from it all still decided to shoot their shot and write to whichever government address they could find trying to get their offers in. Most people offered the so-called asking price of 500 but some enterprising speculators offered £501 or even £1,000. My favourite of all the requests is that made by a woman in Glasgow who offered £500 but added... P.S. The fear of anthrax pales into insignificance to me as I've lived adjacent to a council rubbish dump for nearly three years. I love the optimism. Well, it seems like we finally have a happy ending to the story. The island is clean, the saga seems to have ended without a single human death to anthrax, and Dark Harvest have rode off into the sunset, never to be seen or heard from again. There is, however, the small question of what happened to the remaining soil samples they claimed to have taken from the island in their first letter to the Glasgow Herald. I suspect Dark Harvest disposed of it via an incinerator in either late October of 1981, or perhaps they kept it until the 1986 cleanup to make sure that something was actually being done. Maybe they were bluffing in the first place and only took the two samples, but for an organisation who set out to remove anthrax from local soil, I think they would have been pretty hypocritical if they kept the rest. Now that we're nearing the end, I'd like to give you my theory on who Dark Harvest were. 
I suspect they were the sons of the farmers whose livestock died during the 1943 dog incident. I think it was them and their local friends who made the landing, wrote the letters and delivered the soil samples. Living and working in sight of the island for all those years must have had a certain weight to it, and hearing tales from your parents and their friends of what happened in the 1940s must have fostered a real resentment for the damage done to Grignard. Reread the Glasgow Herald letter with this in mind and focus on the way the author seems to be concerned with the lack of activity and the length of time, not political goals or threats. The goal of Dark Harvest seemed to be to make other people aware of an issue they'd been aware of their whole lives and to have something done about it. I can imagine the conspirators sat around a table in a cosy pub wondering whether anything would ever be done to fix Grignard and I can imagine that as the years went on their resolve steeled and what were once their hazy two-point schemes started to be populated with dates and targets. No wonder the local community was tight-lipped. They wanted Grunyard cleaned up as much as Dark Harvest did. My apologies for the length of this episode. The research kind of ran away from me in the 1940s bit, and I felt like some of the events were just so outrageous that I'd be remiss not to include them. Normally I'd say I hope you enjoyed the episode, but this time I'm changing it to I hope you found this episode interesting. I'd like to thank my voice actors for their help and to once again recommend particularly Chapter 4 of the Harrison Paxman book, A Higher Form of Killing, as well as the excellent BBC documentary, The Mystery of Anthrax Island, as further resources on the topic. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Totally Crucial, Extremely Relevant, Necessary Information.